acts in redemptive history. If you think about it, the Bible is, revolves around the things that move men towards Jesus or moves us historically towards Jesus. You've got Genesis, so you've got Adam and Eve, you've got the fall of mankind, you've got um, Abraham uh, being established as the father of the Israelites. You've got the covenants that are set forth by God. You have the exodus out of Egypt, and uh, you've got the, uh, everything that revolves there around Christ. You've got the atonement of the people. You've got the sacrifice of the lambs. You've got the, uh, you've got the, the promised land, the God fulfilling His promises, and the monarchy and exile. And if you think about it, in the Old Testament, there's a huge chunk of the Old Testament that just revolves around that time of when the Israelites get taken into exile because most of your prophets are prophesying during that time frame. Then you have the Gospels and Jesus and the establishment of the church uh, and the growth of the church. So uh, really, time frame-wise, Scripture is written around just some of the, the main things that point us to Jesus and to our need for Him, both Old Testament and New Testament. So how do we get the books that we've gotten? Let's start with the Old Testament. The Israelites began recording the words of God and the history of God's working among His people. So that's where the Old Testament begins. And really... The first uh, record of, of writing down the words of God comes from God writing uh, the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets. That's really where the first scripture was written and recorded. And then Moses records the first five books of the Bible, and, and from their own, uh, the, the histories are recorded, the, uh, the poetry is recorded, the, uh, the, the, the prophecies and the works of the prophets are all recorded. And so the Israelites began to uh, record the Word of God. And that goes on until about 435 B.C. when uh, Malachi was written. And about 435 B.C. is where really the canon of the Old Testament stops. Anything written after that is not considered part of the, um, the Old Testament. The Israelites considered uh, the Old Testament books finalized at that point. So we see that historically. Um, there is a guy named Josephus who is considered a, a great Jewish or is, Israelite uh, historian. And he wrote, From Artaxerxes to our own times, a complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy uh, of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. Now, what he's talking about there is, we're going to look at this in a second, but after 435 B.C., there were other things that were written, like the Maccabees and things that are included into the Catholic uh, Apocrypha. And so what he's referring to is these historical books that were included there, but were written after the time of Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes died in 424 B.C., so that's just after the 435 B.C. Uh, when Malachi would have been written. And so anything written after that point until we get to the New Testament was considered non-canon, was not accepted by the Israelites as being an official uh, book of their Bible. And so we also see that in rabbinic literature. He says, after the prophets Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi had died, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. So when you look at the Jews, when you look at the Jewish leaders, when you look at Jewish historians, when you look at the Jewish religion, they look at the Old Testament and they say, this is our Bible. Uh, this is what we've accepted historically. This is what our leaders and our teachers have always accepted. This is what we believe is God's Word. Now, as Christians, we believe that is finalized with the New Testament, but the Old Testament has always been accepted by the Jews to be those books that we have recorded in our Bible. 
So not only is it supported historically, it's also supported uh, with the New Testament. According to one count, Jesus and the New Testament authors quote Old Testament as divinely authoritative over 295 times. So from the Gospels to the, uh, Paul and the Epistles to Peter to the um, Hebrews to Revelation and John, over 295 times the Old Testament is quoted authoritatively by the New Testament writers, which points back to say they viewed this as God's Word. They viewed this as authoritative as Scripture. They viewed this as God-breathed. In fact, the only books not quoted in the New Testament are Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. That does not mean that they're not inspired. That's just they're the only ones not quoted. So the Old Testament canon of Scripture is really not much in debate. It's always been accepted uh, from about 435 B.C. That's when uh, the Jews have believed this is it, this is what we've got. And that's always kind of been, for the most part, accepted. So what about the Apocrypha? The only reason I'm including this is because Catholicism is a very large religion. Uh, They hold to the Apocrypha. Their Bible looks different than ours. And so I just wanted us to mention where that came from, just so we have an idea of why they believe that, why they have that, and where it came from. Uh, The Apocrypha gained steam in the Catholic Church when it was added to the Latin Vulgate. That's the Latin version of the Bible. If you remember what we looked at two weeks ago, if you went to a church, a Catholic church back in that time, everything was read, everything was preached and spoken out of uh, Latin. Uh, the normal person was not uh, really allowed to read God's Word because it was written in Latin. And so when it was included into the Latin Vulgate in about 404 AD, that's when it really began to take off and by the Catholic church. It was never accepted by the Israelites. The apocryphal books, the Maccabees, and, and everything else that, w- that is in the apocrypha, I think it's either 13 or 17 books, have never been accepted as valid by the Israelites. And all of the apocryphal books are written after 400 B.C. and before the time of Christ. So they're in that window that we would call the silent period, the silent time, when God didn't speak until John the Baptist came back on the scene. But it was in that moment, it was in that time, it was in that window that these apocryphal books were written. They were never accepted by the Jews as official books or valid books or having the same equality as uh, the Old Testament. So the apocrypha was officially declared to be canon by the Catholic Church in 1546 at the Council of Trent. Now what's neat about this, or, or not neat, but I guess kind of funny, if you remember two weeks ago, we looked at October 31st, 1517. That's when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on the door of the Church of Wittenberg. And so the books of the Apocrypha, they contain a lot of the stuff like praying for the dead and salvation by works. And so when the Protestant Reformation is really taking off is when the Catholic Church says, okay, uh, we're going to add this stuff officially into our Bible because it validates our beliefs. Um, And so this way we can kind of fight against these Protestants. We can fight against these new people coming out and telling us that, that our Our doctrine is wrong uh, because now we've got these other books to back ourselves up. So they've taken these books that have never been accepted historically as God's Word. They add them to uh, their version of the Bible to validate their bad doctrine and their bad beliefs. So that's kind of where the Apocrypha comes from. That's kind of its very brief history. And that's why we don't have it in our Bibles. All right, let's look at the New Testament. The first exact list of the 27 New Testament 
New Testament books that we have appears in A.D. 367. Now, the books that we have have always been accepted as, as God's Word. They've been accepted as official um, writings of the apostles or people connected to the apostles. But before, really before the first century, they didn't need to have a, a canon of Scripture. They didn't need to have it all gathered together because the apostles were still alive. Those who were uh, discipled by the apostles were still alive. It wasn't until they started to die off and the church began to grow that they realized that we need to gather together these books, gather together these letters, so we have a written collection of God's Word for, to lean on and to trust in and to study and to see what we are to believe. And in fact, in 144, around 144, there was a man named Marcion who came on the scene. Now, Marcion looked at the God of the Old Testament and did not like the God of the Old Testament. He was mean. He was judgmental. Uh, he was vindictive. He was violent. He was bloody. And the God of the New Testament, well, he was loving and kind and gracious and sent Jesus. And so he said, you know what? The God of the Old Testament is not God. The Old Testament is not valid. And he pushed aside all the Old Testament and he clung to the New Testament. Partly. He was the first one to gather together a list of New Testament books and say, this is what we should study, this is what we should depend upon. But he only had one gospel, he had the gospel of Luke, and he cut out anything that referred to uh, Israel or to Judaism or the Old Testament God, which, which is God. Uh, he cut all that out, and then he didn't have any of the pastoral epistles. He did not have the book of Hebrews. It was much too uh, focused on Israelite or the Israelites and Israel and the history of Israel. And so he kind of formed his own kind of New Testament. And it was then that the church realized, like, look, this guy's a wackadoo. This guy's a heretic. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. We need to get together and figure out what books we're going to cling to and say, this is our scripture. This is our Bible. This is what we can trust in. This is what we're going to study and invest in. So that list, that first list, the completed list that we have, uh, first shows up in AD 367. Uh, for the most part, it had looked like that ever since uh, the church started uh, with maybe a book or two here or different uh, here or there. But for the most part, the books we have uh, historically have always been the books that the church accepted and looked at. So, brings us to a question, how were the New Testament books chosen? Now, I don't have this in the notes, but let me just say this. One... When we look at the Bible, and, and if anyone ever asks, hey, how do you know these are the right books? How do you know something didn't get left out? How do you know something didn't get put in that didn't need to be there? One, we're going to trust God. If, if God wants us to have His Word, God's going to give us His Word. And if God wants us to trust His Word because God is in control of everything, because God is sovereign, because God is strong, because God is powerful, then, then He can guide the hearts of, of men to make sure that we have what He wants us to have. But... When we look at it from a human perspective, there were three questions that the early church looked at to see which books are valid, which books should we believe in. Because at this time, there weren't just these books floating around, but there were other things floating around, like the Gospel of Thomas is one that was floating around that, that people claimed to be authoritative, that people claimed to be scriptural. Um, it did not pass the test, but there were other things floating around. So they had to see with all this stuff floating around, what are we actually going to believe? So they had three, kind of three criteria that kind of guided them as they looked at this. The first was apostolic origin. Was the book written by an apostle or under the authority of an apostle? Basically, they asked these two questions. Is this particular work under question the work of one of the apostles or 
If it is not the work of an apostle himself, was it produced under the supervision and with a stamp of approval of one of the apostles? Now, open your Bible up to your uh, table of contents. I just want us to glance at this for a second. Because when we look at this criteria, it's neat to see it play out, just kind of how things worked out and how God led uh, the early church. Now look at the Gospels. You've got Matthew and John. They were apostles. Mark and Luke were not, but we know from, we've been studying Mark on Sunday mornings. Uh, we know that Mark's gospel was written uh, as Peter told Mark. Mark wrote it down, so that comes from an apostle. Uh, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Uh, we know that Luke was a historian, that Luke traveled with um, Paul. And so uh, Luke also, he would have interviewed several people as an historian, talked to other church leaders, talked to other apostles. So he would have had the approval of Paul on him. Uh, you've got Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus and Philemon were all written by Paul, who was an apostle. You have Hebrews, which we're not sure who the author is. Some people say Paul, some people say John, but it has always been accepted by the early church, and we'll look at that in a second. Uh, you've got James. Uh, James was a pastor, uh, or the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. He was the brother of Jesus. Uh, he would have had the stamp of approval from the apostles on him. Uh, first and second Peter. Peter was an apostle. First, second, third John. And Revelation were all written by John. John was an apostle. And Jude was a brother of Jesus and would have had the stamp of the approval of the apostles on him. So when we look at the New Testament, we look at all the books they are written, they all trace back to having either apostolic or um, authorship or an apostle's basically stamp of approval is on the author. So as they looked at this, they didn't just take any, any letter that was floating around willy-nilly. They had criteria that said, well, was this written by an apostle? Next, recognition by the early church. How did the earliest leading churches regard the book? If the earliest churches, like the church in Jerusalem where James was pastor, if they looked at these letters, they said, you know what, we believe these are good, we believe these are valid, then that was a, a huge kind of uh, step of faith or approval, stamp of approval on them or on these letters that they could be trusted that they were the word of God. Did the early church approve it? Did the early church believe it? Did the early church accept it? And thirdly, the content of the book. Does the content of the book agree with what the apostle taught orally or wrote when they were still alive? Does the content of the book fit within all of Scripture? Does the content of the book, is there anything in, the, in that book that is just way outside? If there is, then it's probably not a valid book. In fact, the, I mentioned the Gospel of Thomas earlier. There was a Gospel of Thomas that was floating around at this time that they had to look at. And they say, is this a gospel written by the disciple Thomas? Ultimately, it was decided that it was a false, um, it was a false book written by uh, a, a heretical group at the time. Its content did not line up with the content of the rest of Scripture. Uh, the, uh, the church did not accept it. So because it did not meet the criteria, they said, we're not going to include it. So as we look at the Bible, we understand that one, yes, God's hand is on it, but also that as God uses man, that men... They, they, they struggled and they prayed and they, they gave serious consideration and to what books are we going to say make up our Bible. So, why should we study the Bible? Why do we look at the Bible? So, one, we've seen the canon. Now, let's look at the inspiration of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture simply means that God is the author of the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 tells us that the Bible is God-breathed. 
or inspired, or inspired by God means God breathed. It says, all scripture is inspired by God or God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We know that the Bible comes from, not from the heart and the man, or the Bible comes from the heart and mind of God, not man. 1 Peter 1, 20 through 21 says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We believe that the Word of God is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. We believe that this is God's Word, this is God's heart, this is God's mind, that He has given to us to teach us, to show us, to reveal to us who He is and what he want, how He wants us to live. So as we look at the inspiration of Scripture, we're going to see um, because it is inspired by God, because it is authored by God, the different ways that that impacts us and the different ways that we should view Scripture. Before we do that, though, let me, let's look at this. Because I think this is interesting to think through and to, and, and to understand that when God spoke or God moved into a man to, to write Scripture, uh, He spoke or moved through each man's personality and knowledge. Now, if you were to read the New Testament in Greek, and you read the book of John, John was a fisherman. He did not have the most extensive uh, education. And then you look at the book of, of Acts or Luke, and you see Luke, who was a doctor, Luke, who was incredibly smart. The way their letters are written, the way their books are written are incredibly different. John is much more simple. It's much more easier to read. Luke is much more difficult. It's much more intense with its language and with his, his uses of stuff. And so God used John where he was at to write his book. He used his intelligence. He used his experience. He used John and his personality the same way he used Luke as a doctor. Think about it this way. If I gave each of y'all a sheet of paper, and I said, describe this room. Just write down your description of this room. They're all going to be a little bit different, right? But that doesn't mean that they're false or that they're untrue. One person might write, hey, it's a big room with a bunch of reddish purplish chairs. That's all they write. Someone else might write about uh, really intricate details about the, the, the stage and the, and the piano and the cross and all this other stuff and the decorations of it and the beauty of it. Someone else might write about the people that are in the room and the, uh, the laughing and the talking that goes on before and after services. And so it's different perspectives, but it's all still the same thing. In the same way, when God... Think about the, the Gospels. There's four Gospels... And there's really three that line up almost story for story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they all kind of follow the same theme. John looks different. He tells different stories. There are very few stories that are in John that are in the rest of the gospels. And what it is, it's just a different perspective on, on what Jesus did during that time. A different reason for writing, a different perspective for how he was looking at things. And so it doesn't make it any less true, or it doesn't make it untrue just because it looks different from the others. It's because God uses different men. He, uses, he used their personalities. He used their experience. He used who they were. And then the Word of God is living and active because the author is living and active. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The reason why the Word of God speaks to us is because God still speaks through His Word. 
So because Scripture is inspired, there are four things that we're going to see that kind of come out of that that we need to understand, that we need to believe. And here's one of the ones that I want us to kind of focus in on. The inerrancy of Scripture. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything uh, that is contrary to fact. It is fault-free. The Bible always tells the truth with no contradictions. The Bible is true. The Bible is inerrant. That means that there is no falsehoods in the Word of God, which means that we can trust it explicitly, we can trust it wholly, we can trust it completely. Here's some scriptures to back us up. If we believe that the Word of God is is inspired by God, as we've just looked at, then Titus 1-2 tells us uh, that in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God cannot lie. So if this is authored by God, then it has to be true. If we're going to believe that God is the author of the Word of God, then it has to be true because God wrote it and God does not lie. Psalm 12-6, the words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Proverbs 35, every word of God proves true. The word of God is inerrant. The word of God has no error. The word of God has no flaw. The word of God can be trusted. Now, if you look back at your notes, uh, it says that in the original languages, the only reason that, that it says it that way in the notes is because, like we talked about a couple weeks ago on a Wednesday night, There are different translations. There are different um, translations that you can, or paraphrases that you can get the Bible in nowadays. And so if we look at a translation that is word for word, it's going to be closer in context, closer in wording, closer in, uh, you know, exact word for word translation than a paraphrase would, where a paraphrase is just kind of, hey, here's the idea that the Bible presents. Let me just rephrase it and reword it in a way that this may be easier to understand. So that's why we say in the original languages, because a paraphrase is going to look a lot different than a word-for-word translation would. But I can say that of the word-for-word translations that we have, ESV, New American Standard, uh, King James, uh, they are all very valid. They are all very good uh, translations that I believe you can read and you can trust. So let's look at some inerrancy facts. This is just neat to look at. And it shows us God's hand on Scripture. The Bible was written over a 1,500-year span, over 40 generations, over 40 authors from different walks of life, kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, and and scholars, on three continents in three different languages, and all of this with no error, all of this with no flaws, all of this with no fault. There's no contradiction, this verse contradicting this verse. All of Scripture works out. Scripture has been attacked for the last uh, 2,000 years, or really Old Testament, even longer than that. But there's never been a flaw that someone has tried to to hold up and say, well, here's somewhere the Bible messes up that has withstood any kind of testing. They've all been disproven. The Word of God has no flaws. It has no faults. So what does it mean if someone does not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Here are some of the problems that come from denying the inerrancy of Scripture. One, we begin to question if God can truly be trusted in anything that He says. If God is wrong in one part, even just one part of the Bible, then He's no longer perfect, then He's no longer uh, infallible. It means that He can make mistakes. So how do we know that He's not wrong in other areas or other parts of Scripture? 
We make our own human minds a higher standard of truth than God's Word. If someone said that the Bible is not inerrant, then what we have done is we have exalted ourselves to say, I know more than God, uh, I'm right, and God is wrong. We must also say that the Bible is wrong not only in small matters, but also in doctrine, uh, which means if, if the Bible is wrong in something small, then how do we know it's not wrong in the gospel? How do we know if it's not wrong in something that really defines our faith? So we say the Bible has to be inerrant in all areas. And then if we deny inerrancy but believe uh, Scripture to be God-breathed, then we believe that God is a liar and therefore not God. So when people want to look at the Bible, even Christians who want to look at the Bible and say, you know what, Um, I believe most of the Bible. I believe most of the Bible is right. I believe most of the Bible is good. I just don't believe all of it. There are huge problems that come up when we do that. So we cling to the inerrancy of Scripture. We hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, believing that all Scripture is God-breathed and that all Scripture is correct with no flaws. All right, so the next two we're going to go through a little bit quicker because we're also running out of time. Uh, But the authority of Scripture. uh, The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way uh, that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or or disobey God. The Bible has authority because God is its author. When I would come home from school when I was in in high school and uh, really, I guess, more junior high and elementary school, my dad would leave a list of chores for us to do on the table. Um, We didn't have cell phones at the time, so it was just a written down list. It was take the trash out, uh, clean the dishes, peel some potatoes to get stuff ready for dinner. Just a list of just kind of a couple of things that we had to do. Now, my dad did not in person tell me those things, but I knew that that list that he gave me had every bit of authority as if he had told me that face to face. And if I did not do what was on the list, I wasn't just disobeying what was written, but I was disobeying him because he is the author of it because he wrote it down. It had every bit of authority as if he was sitting there telling me face to face. The same way the Word of God has authority, it is God's Word. We might not see God face to face right now, but we do have His Word and its author- or His authority backs it up because He is its author. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for uh, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. In John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. We believe that Scripture has the authority to guide us in our life and decisions. If Scripture has authority, that means the things that the Scripture says, the things that the Word of God says, has authority in our life as if God was saying it Himself. And so God's Word rules out over our wants, our desires, our culture, what other people think, what we might think. God's Word trumps it all. All right, number three, the necessity of Scripture. The necessity of Scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will. But it is not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character and moral law. Now, it is necessary for the gospel. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless someone is sent? For, uh, for people to understand the gospel, they have to know, they have to hear the gospel, they have to understand the gospel, and that comes from Scripture. We know what Scripture is because, or we know what the gospel is, excuse me, because of Scripture, because of God's Word. So if people are to understand the gospel, if they're to understand uh, that we are sinners and we need a Savior, they understand that because of Scripture. So Scripture is necessary for the gospel to be spread. 
Uh, Scripture has more authority than our own testimonies. Look, there's nothing wrong with our testimonies. There's nothing wrong with sharing our testimonies with people and sharing the gospel. There's nothing wrong with that. But I want us to understand that as, as great as our testimonies are, God's Word has more authority and more power than our testimonies. God's Word has more authority and more power than our stories. God can use our stories. God can use our testimonies. I don't want you to think that I'm trying to downplay that or say not to use your testimony and not to share your testimony. It's an awesome, awesome thing that we can share with people what God has done in our life. And we should. We should. But we've also got to understand that the Word of God is living and active. The Word of God is God-breathed. And the Word of God is what is the, the sword that is uh, sharp enough to cut through soul and spirit. It's the Word of God that, that speaks truth. It's the Word of God. And so the Word of God has more power and more authority and more necessity than even our testimonies. The Word of God is necess necessary. It's necessary for maturity. Matthew 4.4 but he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. If we desire to mature, if we desire to know God and love God and follow God, if we desire to grow with God, uh, then we have to understand his word. Uh, and to demonstrate our love for God is done by living it according to his word. The Word of God is important. Now, in that definition, uh, I it said that the Scripture is not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing certain things about God's character. That goes back to Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 1 said, we looked at this a little bit this morning. Romans chapter 1 says that creation proclaims that there is a God so that man is without excuse. You can look at creation and understand there had to be a God to create this world, to, to bring about creation. And so... Creation is enough to tell people that God exists. And then Romans chapter 2 talks about how God has written his, uh, his word on our hearts. So we have a conscience. So we have a basic understanding of right and wrong. So therefore we have a basic understanding of God's righteousness. And so we don't necessarily have to have the word of God for that because God has made creation to satisfy that. All right, so number four, sufficiency of Scripture. I want to spend just a couple of minutes here because... Um, because honestly, sufficiency of Scripture is something that I see as maybe not under attack directly, but it's something that, that probably gets downplayed more than it should. It's something that, that a lot of Christians don't maybe believe or understand or comprehend or put into practice. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contains uh, all the words of God He intended His people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains all the Word of God we need for salvation, for trusting Him, and for obeying Him perfectly. Not us being perfect, but uh, the Word of God is perfect in what it reveals to us about God and how we are to live. And once again, we go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16-17. through 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. If we want to be adequate and equipped for every good work, it's the Word of God. It is Scripture. The Word of God is sufficient. Now, here's what I mean when I say that I think sometimes maybe we don't understand or comprehend that. Now, this is one of the most popular selling books of the last three to five years, however long it's been written. Uh, it's called Jesus Calling. If you like this book, that is fine. That is okay. Uh, but understand that I'm about to talk about it just a little bit. 
Now, understand there is nothing theologically or doctrinally wrong. If you read the, uh, this is a, a devotional book. If you were to read the devotionals, you're not going to find anything that is necessarily unbiblical or untrue. But there is a flaw in the writing of the book. And I think it comes from an honest place. I think it comes from a, an honest desire. But it's a flaw that, that I don't think she meant to do it intentionally, but it attacks the sufficiency of Scripture. In her introduction, the author writes this. The following year, I began to wonder if I too could receive messages during my time of communing with God. I'd been writing in prayer journals for years, but that was one-way communication. I did all the talking. Now listen to this. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I wanted more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. Now what she is saying is, she wanted to know more of God. That is a great thing to know. That is a great passion to have, that you want to experience and know more and more of who God is and how God operates, and you want to be closer to Him. Her fall, her, her flaw, her mistake comes to where she says, I understand that God speaks through His Word, but I wanted more. What she is saying there is the Bible is not enough to tell me who God is. The Bible is not enough for God to speak for me, the Bi- or speak to me. The Bible is not enough. I need something else. And so what she then does is she explains how she goes out. She would uh, sit uh, silent, whether it's at her house, whether it's outside in nature, sit in silence and wait for, um, wait for God to speak. And then she would write that down. Now, once again... She would claim that those are not equal to Scripture. Uh, and anything that she wrote down, uh, whether it was a direct message from God or not, uh, it does not contradict Scripture at all. But her very uh, um, starting point is the problem. It's the issue. Because what she is doing is she's saying Scripture is not sufficient. What God or how God has chosen to reveal Himself is not enough for me. I need something more. And so what she's saying is the Bible's not enough. If the Bible's not enough, that's how God has chosen to reveal Himself, then it goes back to who God is and God's character and can God be trusted. So once again, I think it comes from an honest place. I think she had an honest and a good desire that was just flawed. But the problem is, is that it's the best-selling book over the last three to five years in, in Christian stores or of Christian books, which means there is a lot of people who don't fully comprehend the sufficiency of Scripture. And Scripture has to be sufficient. Because if it's not, if Scripture is not sufficient, then, then how do we know that when, if some Joe Blow walked in off the street and said, hey, God told me X, Y, and Z. I mean, I don't know. Did he? Did he not? Does it line up with Scripture? People could come up and say, God told me blank all day long and come up with these new messages from God and if Scripture is not sufficient, if Scripture is not enough, if Scripture is not sufficient in how God has revealed Himself, then anybody can come up with any message that says anything and claim that it's from God. Sufficiency of Scripture is incredibly, incredibly important. And we are commanded not to add to or take away from Scripture. Deuteronomy 4.2 says, You shall not add to the word I am commanding or take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, which the God... which which your, which the Lord your God, which I command you. Proverbs 30, 5-6, Every word of God is tested. 
He's a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His word or He will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Revelation 22, 18 through 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of, the book, of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book uh, of this prophecy, God will take away his part of the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in his book. It is a very dangerous thing to add to or to take away from what God has said. And sometimes it's just semantics. But whenever anyone says, hey, God told me this, and it's something that's not, hey, God told me this, and it's not, thou shalt not lie. There's not a, a, a direct scripture tied to it that says that direct thing. The red flags come up. Because God has spoken. God has spoken through His Word. Now, God speaks to the Holy Spirit, and God leads us. But God has spoken through His Word, and that is sufficient. Now, here's some practical applications for the sufficiency of Scripture. It should encourage us as we try to discover uh, how God would have us think or do um, to think or what God would have us to do. How God wants us to live. Scripture is sufficient to teach us that and to show us that. It reminds us that we are to add nothing to Scripture and that we are to uh, consider no other writings of equal value to Scripture. It tells us that God does not require us to believe anything about Himself or His redemptive work that is not found in Scripture. So if a church says, hey, this is an essential uh, for belief uh, and it's not in Scripture, then, then it's not. We don't have to second-guess God. We don't have to uh, do kind of like a, 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 a word search for God or a puzzle for God. God has revealed it all in His Word. It reminds us that no modern revelations, quote-unquote, from God are to be placed on a level equal to Scripture and authority. It reminds us that nothing uh, is sin that is not forbidden by Scripture, either explicitly or by implication. It reminds us that nothing is required of us by God that is not commanded in Scripture, either explicitly or by implication. And it reminds us to emphasize what Scripture emphasizes and be content with what God has told us in Scripture. While Scripture does at times give specific answers, sometimes it might not answer a specific question or problem, but it will give guidance. Here's what I mean by that. When I was trying to decide if I was going to marry Jessica, there's not a verse in the Bible that says, Cam, marry Jessica. But there are qualifications of what does a, a godly uh, marriage look like? What does a godly spouse look like? The, does this person love God? Is this person uh, walking with God? And so you look at all these things that the Bible says, this is what you should believe, and this is how you should live. And then you look, okay, does this person line up to that? Do they line up to God's standard? Do they line up to God's word? Is that something that I can do? Uh, so Scripture might not give me a direct answer, hey, go marry Jessica, but it does tell me what a marriage should look like and, and what a, a godly person should look like and so that I can see if she fits the bill and then continue to pray for wisdom and guidance whether I should marry her or not. I did. Um, but Scripture is sufficient, and that is incredibly important for us, I believe, to hold to because if we don't and we allow other things to creep in that, that says that it is from God or a word from God or God said this, um, then all of a sudden the word of God is not nearly as, as special. And also we don't have the same criteria that, that the early church did. We can't go back and say, uh, well, is this validated by, was this person mentored by an apostle? Well, 
No, we're past that point in time. Did the early church accept this? Well, no. So it doesn't fit the criteria, uh, and it, it disregards a lot of the things that we've talked about. So uh, sufficiency of Scripture is incredibly, uh, incredibly important. So we have just run through incredibly fast just some of the very basics of the Word of God, why we should believe the Word of God, why the Word of God can be trusted, and how the Word of God can impact our life. Now understand that... Um, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes energy to study God's Word, to spend time in God's Word, to memorize God's Word, to, to wrestle with God's Word. But because God is the author, because God has given it to us, because that's how God revealed Himself, it is good and it is worth it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and just thank you for this time that you've given us. God, we thank you for your word that you have not left us alone, uh, that you have not left us alone to, to wonder who you are or how you want us to live or how you want us to um, interact with you and with others. But God, you have given us your word. You've written it down for us. Uh, God, let us not uh, take advantage of it. Let, let us not uh, take it for granted. Uh, but let us dive deep into your word so that we can dive deep into knowing who you are and how great and awesome you are. We love you and we thank you. So in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.